Hello, I'm Elika Burma, and I'm happy to welcome you to this podcast on thinking the future from the Accelerate Hub, based at the universities of Oxford and Cape Town. This recording was made on the 5th of January, 2022. This is the third podcast in our second Accelerate Hub series on subjects related to intervention and acceleration in various African contexts, especially involving young people. And our project is funded by the UKRI GCRF. My name is Elika Burma and I'm co-lead of Work Package 3 in the Accelerate Hub. I'm also a writer and a professor of world literature at the University of Oxford. And I'm very interested in storytelling as a form of intervention and as intervention. A quick word on the Accelerate Hub and how it relates to our topic today, thinking the future, future thinking. The Accelerate Hub goal is to improve outcomes for 20 million adolescents across the African continent in relation to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. These outcomes have, of course, everything to do with the future, how we imagine it, how we shape it, what we use to shape it. So today's topic is very salient. And I'm really delighted to be joined today by three fantastic commentators whose work in different ways relates to futures thinking. They are all writers and in their different capacities, genre breakers and genre makers. Together, we'll focus on young people and this all important question of how we face the future. How do we imagine it? Do we do so with hope or with fear and apprehension. What helps us hope and what do we hope for? And how might we use storytelling to picture the future? I'll now introduce the three speakers very briefly, beginning in alphabetical order. And after that, I'll ask each one to say a word about themselves and their interests before we launch into the main conversation. Thank you so much, all three of you, for joining us in this conversation today. Alea Kassam is a Kenyan feminist, storyteller, writer, and performer. She's widely experimental, from page to stage, screen to speaker, microfiction to memory poems. She loves to play with how people experience story. Her writing has been performed and published on multiple platforms and stages around the world from Nairobi to Kigali to Stuttgart. She is the A in the LAM, L-A-M Sisterhood, a content studio that fills the world with stories for African women to feel and be seen, heard, and beloved. Mako Muzenda is a Zimbabwean journalist and writer. A Mandela Rhodes scholar, she's written for publications including the Zimbabwe Independent, The Mail and Guardian, This is Africa, and Daily Maverick. Mako Mazenda's work focuses on African current affairs, women, politics, youth development, leadership, and governance. All topics, of course, with a strong future dimension. Johnny Steinberg's work explores everyday life in South Africa in a time span stretching from late apartheid to the present. Among his books are A Man of Good Hope, which looks at migration and xenophobia, and One Day in Bethlehem, an exploration of the memory of a man who believes he was falsely convicted for murder. Johnny Steinberg has twice won South Africa's premier nonfiction prize, the Sunday Times Alan Payton Award, and he was an inaugural winner of the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prizes. He teaches part-time at Yale University in the United States, and he is a visiting professor at WISER, the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research in Johannesburg, South Africa. He was professor of African studies at Oxford University till 2020. Alea, Kassam, Mako Muzenda, and Johnny Steinberg, you're very welcome today. And I'd now like to turn to you um, briefly to say hi 
and uh, and 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 a line of introduction, please, beginning with Alea. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. It's really lovely to be here. Um, so uh, currently, a lot of my work is is focused on historical storytelling, uh, looking back at the ways that we've been before. Um, in order to perhaps open up new possibilities for how we can be now and also into the future, especially around brazen African women. Thanks, Alea. Marco? Um, hi, everyone. Uh, it's very good to be here, and I'm looking forward to what promises to be a vibrant and interesting discussion. Uh, just a small note on my work. Uh, you know, Elika mentioned that I write on a range of various topics, but something I've always tried to do in my work and, you know, want to expand on in the future is looking at, you know, the big stories and the news headlines, but from the perspectives of quote unquote ordinary people. So, you know, not the, the big names in politics or business, but the people who are usually the most impacted by some of these issues, but whose perspectives and experiences tend not to make it into the headlines. Thank you, Marco. And Johnny? Thanks, Elke. Um, hello, everybody. It's very good to be here. Um, I guess one of my ambitions as a storyteller is to, uh, to show that ordinary people and ordinary Africans in particular um, can be the subjects of complex, morally ambivalent, powerful literature, as much as any uh, 19th century bourgeois person in France or Russia, <laughs> uh, that the moral lives of ordinary people are as complicated, as rich, and as, as difficult um, as anybody's. Thanks very much for those, for those opening words. So turning now um, to the conversation proper, what I'd like to do is to come to each of you in turn and perhaps reverse the, 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 the order. Uh, so beginning with Johnny, um, I'd like to come to each of you in turn and ask you to say something about our topic today, which is how we imagine the future. Um, how, how do we uh, think about um, and set up goals and hopes for, for ourselves? Um, especially in relation to young people on the African continent. So I'm thinking of, of young people who may not have many resources, who may feel cut off from opportunities due to, due to where they live, the circumstances of their lives. How do, do ordinary people, as, 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 as Johnny and, and Marco have, have already been saying, how do ordinary people in such contexts imagine the future in context perhaps of poverty and deprivation? How do we think about tomorrow? A big question. Johnny. It's a very big question. And I hope I'm not cheating it by, by making it a slightly smaller one by taking an example of one person. Uh, I mean, I always find that I learn so much about the people I write about. And, and I would like to have a bash that question through one person's story, who is the protagonist of my book, um, Man of Good Hope. And, and very briefly, his name is Assad Abdullahi. Uh, he was born in Mogadishu. Civil war broke out when he was seven or eight years old in 1991. He fled, was separated from his parents, and lived this incredibly itinerant childhood, wandering around East Africa, making very hard tactical alliances with adults, always cautious, never attaching himself to anybody for too long, uh, drifting. And finally, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he settled on the streets of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and began for the first time to have some solidity in his life. He, he worked as a hustler, um, uh, an intermediary between Somali immigrants and Ethiopians, was finally earning a good, stable living, met a girl and got married, uh, was supporting many young men around him, had really had a household, was becoming an adult. And exactly at this moment, when he had some certainty, he packed up and left. He put $1,200 in his pockets and as an undocumented illegal migrant headed south towards South Africa, not knowing what he'd encounter in the journey, whether he'd survive the journey and not really knowing what he'd find on the other end. 
all he knew about South Africa is that stories that there were riches to be made. And, and for me, that was a puzzle. Why does a person do that at the very moment when they're settling, at the very moment when they have some security? And it took spending a long time with Assad to try and get my best answer to that. And, and eventually, my interpretation of what he was doing was, it was precisely because he was settling that he understood that moment that if he didn't move, his life when he died would just be too close to his life when he was born. He wouldn't have done enough. And it really his ambition in life was to not just experience the new, but to experience the uncertain, to die in circumstances he literally couldn't have imagined when he was a child. And more than that, to know that because he was creating something new, the whole history of his lineage, the whole history of the Abdullahis would change because of what he did in the short years that he was on this earth. Uh, therefore be changing the lives of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren forever. Uh, and a sense that he was a human being who left a mark on the world. And that was so interesting for me because it suggested that for Assad to be a human being is A, to take massive risks um, and, and literally to risk one's life uh, and ask the question of what one's life is worth. Um, you know, is it worth heading to mortal danger in order to be something new? And it just struck me that for somebody like him, the future was about massive uncertainty. It was about the unimaginable, um, but it was worth going there. Uh, even if one was throwing dice, even if we end up in terrible trouble. Um, and so it really taught me a sense of being human, um, which I hadn't quite confronted before. And I admired him for his bravery and living a life like that. And, and at times thought that he was recklessly courageous and ought not to. Thanks, Johnny. Gosh, there's so much there that, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to come back later about um, or kind of almost inviting um, an uncertain future, the future of, 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 of security and, and predictability, kind of, you know, as a, as a way, a single path going forward. Um, but I'd like to turn now to, to, to Marco uh, with this, with this opening question of, um, of, you know, how do we go about um, opening up our future, um, especially in situations where we don't, might not have many resources? Um, well, I think the best way that I can answer that question is to talk a bit about my own personal journey and like my change in perspective in regards to the future. So, you know, 2016, 2015, 2016, 2017, were key years that had like specific milestones and events that really influenced my initial positive perspective on the future. So, you know, 2015 was Fears Must Fall, um, 2016 was Fears Must Fall again, um, but also the RU reference list protests at Rhodes University, you know, protesting against sexual violence. And 2017 was the November 2017 quote unquote coup in, in Zimbabwe. So, you know, coming out of those three events, I was very optimistic about the future. I, I was like, you know, African youth, we're, we've demonstrated that we want to shape the world that we live in. You know, we want to be engaged. We have good ideas. We want to be active citizens and play an active role in shaping our societies, but also building the future, not just for us, but for future generations. And then 2018 and 2019 happened <laughs> and my perspective changed considerably. So I think that there were several factors that changed my perspective. So I would say the, the, the big one was um, coming back home. So coming back home in terms of, you know, I, I started my master's program um, back at Rhodes. So, you know, I had to leave, but then I'd come back for holidays. And when I left in the beginning of 2018, there was still that this, you know, culture of hope, like things didn't change, or like long nightmares finally over. But whenever I would come home, the opposite was happening. Things were getting progressively worse. <laughs> and it really started to shift my perspective because as much as we wanted to participate and as much as during like particular events, we were 
made to feel like we were participating, at the end of the day, we still had no agency and we were still somewhat like passive objects in you know, larger political, social, economic schemes. Um, and I think the second thing that really changed my perspective was just really looking at the data, I would say. So um, in my time as a Mandela Road scholar, but also in a lot of my research as a student and as a, as a journalist, as a writer, I really got to look at, you know, the statistics and the data and the personal stories of a lot of young Africans across the continent. And it shocked me, to be honest. I think the first thing that really shocked me was just how young this continent is. You know, the median age is 19.7. But if you look at the people that are in charge across different sectors, that's really not reflected. And the very specific needs and demands of those populations are not reflected either. Um, second of all, as much as things have improved in terms of, you know, digital access and, you know, just access to education and mobility, in many ways, things have stayed the same and if not have gotten worse. So inequality has gotten worse. Um, unemployment rates have gotten worse. The, the exact same thing, like access to certain spaces and resources has gotten worse. So, you know, the future, the, how, the way I envisage the future at this point is still cautiously optimistic, but increasingly pragmatic, I would say. And that in case there isn't a concerted continental effort to really address a lot of the pressing issues that a significant part of Africa's population faces, the future is not looking very good. Thanks, Marco. So again, there's um, you're talking there, which relates to um, Assad, who, who who Johnny was talking about. You, you're talking there about a quite a radical shift in in imagining the future. Um, in 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 your case, from you know a sense of openness and optimism to a sense of um, because of circumstances and ways in which the future seems to crowd in or not allow possibility and a sense of going forward, um, a, a move to, to pragmatism. Uh, again, there's so much there to pick up. Um, Alep, uh, if, if we could turn to you um, about this question of, you know, this opening question, um, how, you know, how, how do we begin to imagine the future as young people? Thanks, Eleke. Um, I mean, I think, first of all, really, uh, it, it should be a young person answering this question and not me. Um, but um, I, it's, it's, it's a big question to ask. The future is a big word. It's, it can be abstract and amorphous and um, can feel so out of one's hands that the agency feels like it's taken away. Um, and some of the questions that are kind of rolling around in my head are, are touching a little bit on, on what Marco brought up, which is kind of the power structures. Um, you know, when you have the people who are making policies and imagining the future are so out of touch with this continent, then whose imagination is it? Um, one of the things that I've learned to do as a storyteller um, and, and learning from um, uh, Dr. Kiguro Masharia, he, he provokes us to ask us like how we imagine freedom. And I think Im if imagination is a muscle, then like how can you imagine the future in small tangible things? Because there's also a way in which youth are gaslit you know, this narrative of, you know, you can do anything you want if you just try hard enough. Um, you know, you can sort of entrepreneur your way out of, uh, you know, shitty policies. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that word, but I have. <laughs> um, so, so, then, so then really the, the question I'm asking myself is, is, what is the future? And how can I, how can you give shape to it in, in little ways? What does, what does a day feel like? A day that has pleasure and joy and fulfillment and meaning. And how can you actually start to, to make that tangible? Thank, thanks, Alea. Um, 
that, I mean, that is that really, really rings true also with some of the research we've been um, doing in the Accelerate Hub with um, African young people who who may not feel that they have um, the resources to, as as you were saying, to entrepreneur their way out of out of you know a, a, a negative circumstance, but nonetheless. Um, feel that drive and that energy that Mako was talking about of, of, of kind of wanting to own the future, wanting to grab hold of it, um, um, often by doing something, um, um, you know, connecting with other people, um, um, sometimes, um, you know, joining, joining a group um, and, and taking collective decisions. Um, so I think that that bridges quite neatly, and I, I think I might I, I might ask you um, to to speak again, Alea, that we you know we go back um, through 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 the order we just had, um, uh, and and I'd like to put this question to all three of you, which kind of builds on on on, on what you've been saying. Um, I'd like us to think really concretely here, because we're talking about people who. Um, who, 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 who may not have access to that many resources, but who nonetheless want to be pragmatic, want to be, um, <clears throat> want to work concretely um, and, and, um, and, and might be helped by having a sense of, um, you know, how to move forward into the future. So, so, so the question is this, what helps us to feel empowered about the future? In, in your different work and your different writings, um, what have you noticed, whether in your own experience or that of others you have worked with and observed, what helps us to feel empowered about the future? So imagine, you know, that people who will be young people who will be um, listening to this podcast in the future. What, what, what would you recommend? What would you advise turn to? Concrete things, if possible. Um, here's what I, I, I found two things to be um, energizing. One is connecting to things happening across the continent. Um, and so I can say for sure that, you know, um, the roads must fall movement, um, the feminist activities happening around the continent. These are incredible spaces to connect to, to, to learn from, to energize, to imagine together, um, to imagine outside of perhaps a space that you may be confined within um, and to be in community with. Um, so that's the first thing I found to be really incredibly useful. And the second thing that I'm finding here in Kenya especially is um, you know, a return, like I mentioned, to sort of historical storytelling. We have, um, in Kenya very specifically, we have a sort of state-prescribed amnesia that's robbed us of our, of our history. And so what's happened is that we don't we, we, haven't, we haven't seen ourselves as heroes. We haven't understood the struggles that we've been through. We, we don't understand the complexities. We don't understand how we got through them, how we wrestled with power dynamics, what our ideologies were, what it is that we fought for, what, is it, what it was that we dreamt for, um, what our strategies were, you know? And so I'm seeing that youth are also, you know, really hungering and thirsting for these stories that have been kept away from them and also finding energy in them, seeing the ways in which, um, in, you know, even in similar difficult situations, um, their ancestors would have navigated difficult times, would have imagined different ways of being um, and how, what triumph looks like, what betrayal looks like, the complexities that that Johnny was talking about, that it isn't just a simple singular story of freedom garnered, but that there was a wrestling of ideology. Um, and in that kind of also getting their agency back, seeing them as center to the story. Um, that's a thing that I'm finding is, is really, really um, 
youth in Kenya very specifically are, are finding value in. Interesting. So interesting. That idea of, of, of not simply getting freedom, but wrestling with ideology, negotiating, and clearly also taking risk, um, which, which was something that, that, that Johnny mentioned also in, in respect of um, Assad, um, the man of good hope. Um, Marco, um, turning to you now um, with this with this question of what helps us to feel empowered. What 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 has in the journey that you were that you were describing earlier, your own personal journey, um, what has particularly helped with um, with with a sense of empowerment or your feeling empowered? Um, okay, so the three main things that I've identified um, from my personal journey, but also just, you know, speaking to other people. Um, the first, and I think the most significant for me is stability. So, you know, in order to be, to be able to even dream about the future and plan for the future, a stable present is important. And stability comes in like different forms. You know, there's political instability, there's, there's political stability, there's economic stability, there's social stability. You need to have a community, society, country that number one, you don't, you feel like you can actually build a future in, you know, where you can, you know, buy property or start your own enterprise and it doesn't all come crumbling down tomorrow because of a particular, you know, government policy or something. That's something that's I've personally seen in Zimbabwe where, you know, the government can issue a policy and say, oh, effective midnight, you know, this is, this is now the situation. So you don't even have time to reorganize or, you know, rearrange what you've started because literally in a couple of hours, it's all done. So stability for me is the first. The second really is resources. And resources in terms of you know, financial resources, but also you know, social networks and safety nets is also very important. So again, you know, speaking from personal experiences in Zimbabwe, where we, we are a generation that witnessed our parents' pensions, everything that they worked for wiped out overnight, like they had nothing left. And in turn, that meant we had nothing left. We, had to not only find enough resources for ourselves, but to also support, you know, our parents and our grandparents as they got older. And if you can't get a stable job, if you can't even think of buying a house, if you can't get a car, if you can't do any of these things, you're constantly living in the present because you're constantly thinking about day to day. You don't have the capacity to build. Uh, the third thing is representation. And that mainly is political and economic representation. So if you don't have people in important positions who are representing your best interests, then people are not gonna have your interests in mind when they're making particular policies or when they're establishing particular laws or trying to implement things. Because if you're not in the room, people aren't gonna think of you. It's, it's, it's that simple. As much as I think, some of it is you know, malevolent and intentional in terms of wanting to marginalize certain groups. Some of it is also just not knowing because people who represent those groups are just not in the room. So those are the three things that for me are essential to you know, the African youth. And for me in particular, even like dreaming and building a future. So in... Thanks, Marco. And so in, in your case, um, some of the risk that that um, Johnny was describing, Assad kind of grabbing hold of, is actually anathema. You, you, you know, what, 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 what you're talking about is actually the, the need, the hunger, the, 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 the crying hunger for, for um, a, a sense of a future path at all, not simply living in the present, but mm. but um, but but having a sense that the present moves on into the future, and um, that bridge over well to, to Johnny's subject, uh, who you introduced us to, Johnny of Assad, 
So, so what would your um, response be then, Johnny, to this uh, question of, of, of how, how do we feel empowered and, and, and what are the barriers to feeling empowered? What, perhaps um, sort of you know, focusing in on um, the case of Assad, um, what, what, what was it that, um, you've already gone into this a bit, but you know, in relation to this question, what was it that allowed him to, that empowered him to, to take that decision and, 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 and uh, move to a completely different future than his parents had had, um, had, had available? Well, I mean, the short and blunt answer is, is that he, he had some understanding of the real conditions of his life. And, and in fact, I can extend that point by talking about a completely different example, if, if you don't mind. And, and, and it really is a point about stressing that people are informed or honestly told of the real conditions of their lives. So about a decade ago, a really interesting book was published called Growing Up in the New South Africa by Rachel Bray and, and several other people. Out of many, many things, one of the things they did is that they, they surveyed uh, groups of high school students, one in a fairly prosperous middle-class um, area of Cape Town, Fishhook, and another just a few kilometers away, one of the most deprived areas in the Cape Peninsula, Masipumalele, um, and came up with this weird finding in Fishhook levels of hope among uh, middle-class uh, high school students was quite low. In Masipumalele, it was pretty high. Uh, you know, on a, on a standard quantitative gauge of zero to 10, the Masipumalele youths were much more hopeful. And when the researchers dug a bit more, they said to the Masipumalele youths, what are you going to become when you grow up? And they would say, neurosurgeons, engineers, uh, you know, highly trained university educated people. And they were wondering what to do with those findings because these kids were going to very poor schools. Hardly any of them were going to get a university entrance. Clearly they were not going to become engineers or neuroscientists. And the researchers asked why they thought that they would be when objectively it just wasn't true. And essentially they, they blamed the stories that young people were being told. Firstly, by their church, um, you know, evangelical priests essentially saying, if you love God, he will love you back um, and good things will come to you. The second, their school principals saying, you know, you've seen the generation before you fail, but they failed because they're bad people. Um, and if you are good, you will be okay. And essentially they were being told stories that were profoundly untrue. Um, there were ostensibly stories of hope, ostensibly so stories about the future, uh, but they were opiates. Um, they, they weren't good stories at all. Um, and I think that if those youths had been told that they probably would not become neurosurgeons, they would probably not become engineers, and that it was no fault of theirs, it was because of the world in which they were born, which was a deeply unfair, deeply unequal world, I think that would have been much, much more empowering. And, and I understand that that's an uneasy thing to say. You know, what do people do, you know, when they're told that? Do they get angry and rebel? Maybe, maybe they should. Um, I, I, I just think that ironically, paradoxically, you have much more agency um, if you're told that this future is in fact blocked to you because there's something deeply wrong out there. Um, I think that knowing those truths being able to position oneself objectively in one society is empowering. Um, and what decision you're gonna make after that is, it could be a difficult decision. It could be a destructive decision. It could be a decision based on pure anger. Um, it's really what happens next is unknowable. Uh, but I think the truth of one's circumstances is very important to know. There's an interesting link there but between uh, what you were saying, Johnny, and what Marco was saying about um, about protest and the the, the energy um, that she, as a as a young student, um, got from some of the protest movements in the mid 2020 teens, Marco, would you would that be would that be accurate? Um, yes, actually, <laughs> um, and it's interesting, Johnny, when you're talking about you know. 
being told untrue stories, that's something that came up specifically in the Fees Must Fall protest in 2015, because this is a generation of students who grew up being told in schools, but also just, you know, the media, the idea that, you know, apartheid was over, the world was their oyster, they just had to go in, get an education, and they could improve, you know, their, their material conditions that they could be something in the world. But then when you get to university, the reality is completely different. So first of all, getting to university in itself was a privilege. And being able to stay in university, especially as school fees just went up and up every year, was also a privilege. And just, you know, navigating this particular system as someone who comes from a marginalized background, you know, racially, economically, socially, was some 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 kind of a wake-up call, I would say. And it, it really translated into a sense of anger because, you know, the, the reaction really was, this is something that should have happened. We should be able to do all these things. We should not have to have these particular roadblocks in our way, but they still exist. And yeah, it did translate into protest movements. But I think, you know, just zooming out a bit, and talking about like African youth as a whole, I think that 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 theme of like an untrue story is also relevant because especially when you look at, you know, news stories and speeches from politicians, you know, you're constantly told, oh, the youth of the future. Oh, we love the youth. Oh, we're implementing all these policies to ensure, you know, youth participation and youth empowerment. But the reality on the ground and their lived experiences are completely different. So you know, sometimes that does translate into protests. Um, sometimes it translates to, as I've seen here in Zim, just a sense of like apathy and resignation. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a very interesting point, Johnny. And I, for me, it's just sad how relevant it is to so many different like contexts and countries. And, and Alep, uh would you have um, examples in your <clears throat> own experience? Would you have examples in your own experience uh, relating to that sense of frustration, anger, um, sort of betrayal by an older generation? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think in, um, in when we got rid of our dictator, I think that that the year after that was Kenya was the most optimistic country in the world. And I think the real tragedy is that so many of us believed that finally things would be better without realizing that these were systemic issues that could not be solved at an individual level. And I think that's where the real frustration is, is there seems to be very little will to change the systemic imbalances, because obviously they benefit, you know, a small group of powerful people at the top. And, you know, this idea that if you aren't being, if you aren't able to get ahead in life, you know, it's your fault because all the opportunities are out there. And if you just, you know, if you just grit your teeth and work a little harder, you know, um, but, you know, how do you dream of tomorrow when today is beating at your door? Um, and, you know, it's, a lot of it is just pure lies. Um, there's, there's a lot of lies the government tells about the opportunities that are being made available. Um, so certainly there's a betrayal and, and in a way, this is why I'm less interested in my own imagination of the future than I am of the younger generations because my imagination is already tainted by bitterness and cynicism. Um, and I already, it's kind of, um, it's caged in a little bit, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm already beaten down by, you know, se seeing several different um, hopes being dashed and, and, uh, there's a thing that youth can can imagine that once you get past a certain generation, I think you just you just can't. But that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> 
So we've got to a place of um, a very, very interesting place of um, recognizing that there are systemic issues which, which dampen um, and stifle young people's hope and um, the sense of the future being open to them. To, to pick up on that, that great line you gave us, Alea, you know, how do you greet tomorrow when today is, is, is beating at your door? Um, and beating at your door often in a, in a threatening way. Um, I mean, just to throw something out that has been kind of perhaps simmering un under the surface of, of everything we've been saying. Um, it may sound really, you know, quite sort of weak and, and, and ineffectual as a, as, 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 as a suggestion of moving forward. But um, we have been talking about, um, about leaders. We have been talking about, um, you know, what fosters um, a sense of optimism. Um, we have been talking about unhelpful stories as well as helpful stories. Do role models help? Um, do what are the exemplary stories? If in that context um, of um, in 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 um, the Cape um, that you were alluding to, Johnny, if in that context um, those kind of impossible big dreams were actually disempowering, then they were empowering. What are, the, what are the role models, the stories, the inspiring tales that might work in these very, very difficult circumstances that, that we've all been, been touching on when, you know, when, when today is beating at your door? Um, just, I mean, we can just, you know, toss out a few things. We're not going to solve it here, but, but um but, but thinking of who might be listening to, to this podcast in the future, um, what, are the, what are the, are, are there role model stories that might help? Uh, is, is that for me? <laughs> um, you, you know, I, th I think that, that role models in one way or another are stitched into every human being's imagination that we, we, we you know, we idealize. Um, we're always imagining particular people when we imagine the future. Um, I mean, I think that when you're growing up in very difficult circumstances, the, the range of role models are always vast. They are, you know, from people with style, people with money, people who can exercise violence, uh, people who have managed to get out and get ahead. Um, and the question of which of those role models a young person is going to identify with is is wide open, um, but they can lead in in a hundred different directions. Um, but but yes, I think it's inevitable that there are always role models. We we struggle to imagine the future without watching somebody else doing it first. Um, I, I guess I'd want to distinguish between two different sorts of role models, and and the one is somebody who is idealized into a god, um, and and therefore becomes unattainable. Uh, and becomes a disempowering dream uh, who actually strips you of your own agency because you couldn't possibly get there. You can't be a god. Um, and the other is a sort of role model who is actually attainable, who is still a human being. Um, it's such an important distinction and it, it matters so much uh, which is which. Yeah, I'm, I'm very struck by um, ju just to, to quote you know one example that I find very interesting in the in the British context um, is um, is is the example of of the footballer Marcus Rashford who who has um, who you know by you know, building charities and and embracing um, you know s s some of the you know the Kind of failure as well as 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 well as success um, has, has is I think an extremely interesting role model and 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 one who, you know he, he is a role model for for, for a lot of um, young young people in Britain um, but um, I'm I, I, I I'm I'm talking too much um, Marco or, or Alea um, on this question of role models. Um. I think it's very interesting 
uh, what you said, Johnny, about, you know, the two different kinds of role models, because it's true, um, but I, I tend to like put <laughs> specific labels on them. So the first kind, you know, where you talk about um, role models who are idolized into becoming gods in a negative way, for me, from what I've seen, always tend to be political um, leaders. So whether it's a president or, you know, the, an opposition leader, because instead of, you know, that person being aspirational, encouraging you to do better, they, 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 they embody a, a sort of savior role. Like, you know, they're the ones who are gonna save us. They're the ones who are gonna fix all of our problems and my current situation. And whilst obviously it is the duty and obligation of um, politicians and people in positions of power to serve, more often than not, that's not what happens. So that idolization, often turns into disappointment and, you know, um, again, that, that sense of apathy and just like completely giving up on the system and just like disengaging. The second kind of role model, which I've seen specifically in Zimbabwe, but also other countries in terms of, you know, this is someone who's still human, who you can look up to and who you still have that kind of level of access to, I would say, for me has really been um, musicians, firstly, and secondly, athletes. So, you know, in the, in the Zim context where you have musicians such as Winky D who, you know, make music that really speak to a lot of the conditions that people are living in, but also have like an element of hope and, you know, celebration of, you know, Zimbabwe as a country. And not only that, but, you know, sticking to your roots, like sticking to your roots in terms of they're not, living apart from their communities. They, they still go into the, the places that they grew up in. They engage with the young people there. They have conversations, you know, they give back. And those are the kind of role models that I, I look at more positively because perhaps because they aren't associated with political power, they have more freedom to move. They, they have that ability to get closer to people and to represent people's interests. So yeah, musicians, athletes, I've seen like consistently tend to be the favored role models of, of youth, especially marginalized youth. And Alea, with your interest in, in culture and music and, and dance, um, would you relate to, to that idea of, of, uh, of role model that, um, that Marco mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. Especially musicians. I think, I think what, what, um, what there is a yearning for though is, is more complexity in the way these role models are um, portrayed. You know, the sense of, we wanna know the how, not just the what. Um, and certainly, you know, like Michael mentioned in marginalized communities, musicians that um, are very connected to those communities and really are have a are really really doing the work to try and and bring people along with them there's definitely also like a values question at hand um in Kenya you know around who deserves to be a role model what values should a role model have um and this is something the youth are challenging um and i think absolutely rightfully so because um religious bodies have really let the youth down and still insist on bearing kind of the moral um, compass of, of who should be who should be held up and who shouldn't. And so there's there's an interesting conversation around that that's happening, you know, within our media and, and within, you know, the communities themselves as well. So we're moving towards the the end of our time together. I'd 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 love to talk all morning because um, there's such fascinating questions and and ideas that are coming out of out of this discussion um, about risk and about danger and about systems and about um, and, and 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 about frustration with those systems. Um, but as we are moving to the end of our time. Perhaps we can we can um, come to a close with just a kind of a round of um, of if it doesn't sound over optimistic um, 
of kind of recommendations from, on the basis of this discussion and on the basis of your work and, and, and your experience with storytelling and seeing young people take up role models from the sporting world or from, from, um, from music. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in um, this question you just raised, Aleb, um, about wanting to know the how rather than just the what, the how of the role models and how we mobilize these, um, these more, these positive, but also doable, uh, you know, stories um, in, in our lives um, and, 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 and how young people, to the extent that we, you know, we, we, are, we are in touch, and Marco is certainly speaking as a young person, um, how we mobilize these stories in, in, in our lives. Um, um, so if we can just, I mean, we're not going to, you know, this isn't going to be conclusive, but if we could just, um, just think about the, you know, wanting to know the, the how rather than just the what and what our recommendations might be um, in, in uh, thinking about um, the future or, you know, um, how, how do we, how do we greet the future when today is still knocking at our door? Big question. Who'd like to, who'd like to take a punt at it first? I can go ahead. Um, you know, I think about, um, I think it, it was Mariam Kaba who said, hope is a discipline. And I think um, I hold on to that. Um, I hold on to what it looks like to exercise hope. Um, every day, you know, and every way in your life. And I think about how, you know, the powerful structures work very hard to, to extinguish that hope because once they have, then it's just easier for them to kind of carry on doing what they do. And so this idea of hope feels important and urgent to me and also feels necessary to share in community, whatever way that might be, and to really uh, cherish whatever it is that does offer hope and not invalidate it. Um, and, and kind of parallel to that, I think, is also this idea of imagination being a muscle. And also, you know, it, particularly in the Kenyan context, where our education systems work so hard to really, really stamp out any form of imagination, you know, the, your imagination becomes like this, the most powerful tool that you have you know, without it, there's, there's no po possibility for anything different. Um, and so how to then exercise that imagination and how to exercise it in ways that have meaning for you, even if other people say it, it, it is useless, um, because there will be a lot of that also. The thing that you're doing doesn't have validity. It's not useful. It's, and I think there's, to resist that is also very powerful and to be in community because it's, you know, it's difficult, it's lonely, it's hard, you know, it's, um, and, and there's such, such a joy, love and power in community. Thanks so much, Alea. Gosh, that was very in, in, inspiring. Um, Johnny, if I can turn to you um, next and, and, um, and then Marco. So I, I don't have recommendations. I, 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 it would be presumptuous. <laughs> um, so can I rather end on just on a note that, that I wrestle with about imagination, a question that I just don't know the answer to and that I think is difficult. And, and it comes from your, your reference to Marcus Rashford. Um, I mean, what, what are people doing when they get excited about Marcus Rashford? They, I mean... 999,000 out of 100,000 are not going to become professional footballers. And, and what they're doing is becoming a professional footballer in their imagination, living vicariously through Marcus Rashford. And my question is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And, and I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think that we all need to live in fantasy just to be human beings, just to imagine a future, to have hope, all of that. It requires living vicarious lives that are not ours and that are other people's and it's healthy. But there's a point at which it becomes destructive. Uh, there's a point in which it's too much about fantasy and not about our own lives. Um, and exactly where that line is, I don't know, but it seems a really, really important line to me about imagination, about fantasy, about storytelling, 
about its enormous power, but also its potential destructiveness. Uh, I think the line between the power and the destructiveness is quite blurred. Um, and, and I want to know more about exactly where it is and why. Thanks, and, 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 and Marco. Um, so the first thing that I'll say um, speaks to Alea's last comment on community. Um, I think it, it, it involves like a micro and a macro approach. So, you know, on, on a community level, I do think community building and just having those spaces where people can talk about what they're going through is really important because in situations of, you know, political, social, economic crises and instability, even though, you know, everyone else is struggling, it's also very easy to feel like you're the only one who's going through something. And with that comes a sense of shame and isolation, but knowing that you have, you know, the social support, you have people that you can talk to and you have those spaces available, I think is the first step in addressing, you know, the issues of the present in order to build a tomorrow. Um, I think the, the second thing really for me, and this is again, like on a, on a or like zooming out, is about implementation. One of the most frustrating things for me is a lot of policies, really great policies and really great frameworks exist, like they're there. So, you know, the, the, the AU has the African Youth Charter, Zimbabwe has the National Youth Policy, we have a whole youth council. The problem is implementation. Those great policies and those great frameworks and that like big vision isn't being translated to on the ground action. So in order to like, like um, a recommendation really would be to get, to get implementing. Unfortunately, a lot of that is in the hands of government, <laughs> which usually is not the, the, the quickest or the best in terms of implementation, which is why I think um, there needs to be a lot more participation from um, civic society and the private sector as well. So those are the two things that I can really think of in terms of recommendations. Um, and just to comment a bit on Johnny's question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I interpret that differently. So if we're going to use the example of Marcus Rashford, but you can, you know, substitute him for any other kind of role model um, in different communities, it's not necessarily about you know, wanting to become a footballer or wanting to become a musician for every single person. It's more a situation of this is someone who has managed to, you know, rise up or rise out of their particular conditions, but hasn't forgotten where they came from. They're still who they are at the end of the day, and they hasn't let that change affect their, their personality, and they still feel connected to um, their society and their community. That's how I interpret it. So even if, you know, they, they don't end up becoming professional footballers or musicians or just athletes in general, that sense of, you know, not forgetting who you are, not forgetting the community that raised you is something that will still stick with people, even when, you know, they're 20, 30 or 40. That's incredibly helpful and very, very rich and interesting. Just pulling those, some of those final thoughts together. Um, hope is a discipline. Imagination is a muscle. I love that. We all need to live in fantasy, but how? And that wonderful urge, urging um, that you offered at the end there, Marco, of, you know, let's get implementing and not forget where we come from, not forget our past as we move through this uh, strange present in, into, in, into our future. Um, the, 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 those are great thoughts, if not recommendations, great thoughts to take away from, from this discussion on the future, really sort of positive ways um, on which to, to end, um, even as we recognize that there are you know, so many difficulties that press down on, on, on people's lives. 
Um, I'd like to thank all three of you very, very warmly for joining this discussion today. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do another round at some point. Um, thank you very much to Johnny Steinberg, to Marco Muzenda, and to Alea Kassam. Um, um, all power to your amazing work in your different contexts. Um, you, you, you are building the future through your stories and, and, and through your example. Um, um, and thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. Uh, it's, been, it's been really great having this conversation today. Goodbye. Thank you.